Well, we are going to be in Matthew 7, if you want to make your way there. Suppose you were in the middle of San Antonio, and you wanted to head over to Houston. So you would go 35 north, or you could go 35 south, 37 south, maybe I-10 west. You, you could take any of those roads, right? Or maybe you're in Uvalde and you want to take a quick trip over to Pearsall for some reason, reason, and so you go 83 north or 90 west. Now, if you know anything about driving around here, you're, you're saying to yourself, that guy's crazy, because if you want to go to Houston, you take I-10 east, and if you want to go to Pearsall, you certainly don't go north on 83. So if you want to get to a certain destination, you've got to get on the right road. But what about spiritually? Can we get on any road we want spiritually and, and kind of end up where we're hoping to go? Do, do all roads lead to heaven? Well, this morning, that's what we're going to think together about. We'll take a look at what Jesus has to say about this. We are continuing through the Sermon on the Mount, and, and in this sermon, Jesus is teaching what it means to be a true disciple, what it means to be a true follower of his. Now, he had addressed the Sermon on the Mount particularly to his disciples, but remember, when he preached the Sermon on the Mount, there were crowds of people everywhere. And a lot of the people who were hearing what he had to say were not followers of his. They, they were folks who were just sort of interested in what was going on. And so as he concludes the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives four warnings. And we're going to take a look at the first warning this morning together. Let's read Matthew 7, beginning in verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide. And the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. In this text, Jesus urges his listeners to take the way that leads to eternal life. Jesus urges his listeners to take the way that leads to eternal life, and he contrasts two roads. First, Let's look at the wide road. We see this in verse 13. Now, the wide road is associated with ease and comfort. Um, if you, you enter the wide road or, or the wide gate, the gate is so large, it suggests that you don't have to leave anything behind. You can just keep believing whatever you've believed. You can keep doing whatever you've been doing. The gate's so wide, you, you can do whatever you want. And he says, in fact, that if you enter through the wide gate, down that wide road, that the way uh, is indeed uh, one of, of ease. One commentator explained it this way. It is the road of tolerance and permissiveness. It has no curves, no boundaries of either thought or conduct. Travelers on this road follow their own inclinations. That is the desires of the human heart and its fallenness, superficiality, self-love, hypocrisy, mechanical religion, false ambition. These things do not have to be learned or cultivated. Effort, on the other hand, is needed to resist them. No effort is required to practice them. That is why this road is called broad. Now, notice there's, there's so much room. If you're flying in a plane, if you've got the choice between first class and coach, you're probably going to choose first class because you'd like a little space. And this road gives you space, gives you all the space that you can imagine. C.S. Lewis, 
in his autobiography, describes how as a young teenager, he began to broaden his mind. Lewis said, I was soon altering, I believe, to one does feel, and oh, the relief of it. I passed into that cool evening twilight of higher thought, where there was nothing to be obeyed, nothing to be believed, except what was either comforting or exciting. Now later, Lewis would change his perspective, and he would come to know Jesus and recognize the foolishness of that kind of thinking. But at any rate, it gives us a picture of what it means to walk on this broad road. Just do what you want. Just be who you are. Just go wherever you want to go. Just believe whatever you want to believe. And doesn't that sound like the ethos of the day, the mood of the day? And why wouldn't you want to be on this broad road? So many people who are on this road, they're living it up. They're having fun. They're going this way and that way. They're doing what they want. And it seems like so much fun, but many who are walking this wide path haven't given much attention to where it's leading, to to the destination. And Jesus tells us here tragically that the destination for this wide road is destruction. It's destruction, ultimately. We know that here on earth, our sins have a way of catching up with us. We can, we can live for a while in our sin and, and probably do all right. And for a while we think, man, this is the best life ever. Man, I, I can do this, I can do that. But eventually, even here on earth, those sins have a way of catching up with us. They have a way of hurting us, of, of destroying us and harming us. That's one of the reasons that the Lord calls us to a life of purity and holiness because he knows that sin, destroy, that sin destroys us. It's sort of like this. When we choose to sin, it's like we take something and we make a gash in ourselves. Now, we have no idea we're doing that. It seems great and fun at the moment, but in reality, we're, we're just taking a gash out of ourselves. We're harming ourselves, but that's not all. As you look at what Jesus is saying here, He's saying that this road is a path not just to harm here on earth, but ultimately a path that leads to judgment. It leads to destruction. And to put it plainly, Jesus is speaking of hell. The path, this wide path that is so easy and so nice with so much room, the destination is judgment. It's hell. So people who have rejected life here on earth and who have said to God, you know what, God, you may say this, you may say that, but I'll live however I want to live. Jesus says, ultimately, if you want to walk that path, you'll have that for eternity. For eternity, you'll get what you've always wanted in life, life without God. You'll get life without God. If that's what you wanted, then that's what you're going to get for eternity. But it does not lead to happiness. No life without God leads to horror. Now, some have tried to redefine hell. You might say to to air condition hell because the notion of hell is really uncomfortable today. It it seems so mean, right? And and so people have made arguments uh, that hell is really just a temporary time of correction, like like hell is not really what you see described in the Bible, but really it's sort of just you're going to go to uh, this destination for a while, you're going to kind of get your act together, and then you're going to be on your way. All roads lead to heaven, right? You may have to take the detour, but ultimately it's going to lead to heaven. This view is called ultimate reconciliation. Uh, one of the, the guys who, who teaches this often is a man named Rob Bell. He was a, a former pastor, has written 
New York Times bestsellers, and one of his books is called Love Wins. And, and Bell argues that God couldn't be great, loving, or merciful if people went to hell. He says there's no way God could be those things if people went to hell. And so he says probably hell is something more like a time of pruning, more like a time for people to, to get cleaned up and, and then be on their way. The problem is this. There's no biblical support for that kind of an argument. There's no doubt that God wants all people to be saved. There's no doubt about that. Scripture is clear that, that he desires that all would be saved, but, but so many reject him. So many refuse to believe. In fact, Bell's proposal that hell is just a time of pruning is exactly opposite of what Jesus himself says. In Matthew 13, uh, verse 50, Jesus speaks of the wicked being thrown in the fiery furnace. In Matthew 25, 41, Jesus says the wicked will join the devil and demons in the eternal fire. In Matthew 25, 46, he suggests that the wicked will go to eternal punishment. In Mark 9, 43, Jesus speaks of unquenchable fire. In Luke 12, 5, Jesus urges his followers not to fear people but God who has the authority to cast into hell. In John 3.36, Jesus says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son of God shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. In John 5.29, Jesus speaks of the judgment of evil. In Revelation 21.8, but as for the cowardly, the fatherless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Jesus spoke more about hell than about heaven. In fact, Hebrews 9.27 says this, is appointed unto man once to die and after that to face judgment. So while Bell's proposal is appealing, it fails biblically. And ultimately, I don't believe that it's truly appealing as we consider God's grand plan and scheme, his, his plan to, to bring salvation to people and to, to deal with wickedness and sin. But the Bible is clear. There is no second chance. In this life, we either turn from sin and we put our faith in Jesus or we reject God and his revelation of himself. So what is universal reconciliation? It's another form of universalism, which argues that all people will ultimately be saved, period. And again, on its face, it may have some appeal, but this kind of thinking throws out God's hatred towards sin and his disdain for that which is evil and wicked. You see, the Bible is clear. God hates sin, and he loves people. He hates sin, and he loves people. So a thought like this is unbiblical. It's unfaithful to what the text teaches here and what the Bible teaches overall. Now, many are going to complain today about God and the existence of evil. How could God allow the, the atrocities that we see in, in Syria, for example? How could God permit those kinds of evil things? Or someone will say, how could God permit a child to be abused? Why, why doesn't he stop that? Why doesn't he deal with that kind of evil? Why doesn't he confront it? 
And yet, often, the same people will complain when God does judge sin and evil in a place called hell. You see, God is a holy God, and sin must be dealt with. And in reality, sin will be dealt with. It'll be dealt with as we, as we kneel down at the foot of the cross, or it will be dealt with at judgment as we, as we find the wrath of God. Now, some will say, this seems so unfair. We want evil dealt with, but we don't really want God to deal with it. On the other hand, but imagine what human judge who let murderers and thieves and you name it, who let them go, who let them off the hook, which human judge that did that sort of thing would be esteemed? No, we would all cry out and say it's injustice. And now we get a small glimpse of the character of God. His character is perfect justice. He can't overlook sin and minimize it and make it little. It's not little. He can't wink at at our sinfulness. And so while we demand an accounting from God for the evil that we see in the world, at the same time, we often don't want him to, to judge sin and to deal with sin. But Scripture is clear. Hell is a reality for all who reject God. One writer who was reflecting on God's mercy and judgment wrote this. In every other religion in the world that holds to the idea of a supreme deity, that deity's mercy is always exercised at the expense of justice. For example, in Islam, Allah may grant mercy to an individual, but it's done by dismissing the penalties of whatever law has been broken. In other words, the offender's punishment that was properly due him is brushed aside so that mercy can be extended. Islam's Allah and every other deity in non-Christian religions set aside the requirements of moral law in order to be merciful. Mercy is seen as at odds with justice. In a sense, in those religions, crime can indeed pay. And he continues, Christianity is unique in that God's mercy is shown through his justice. There is no setting aside of justice to make room for mercy. The Christian doctrine of penal substitution states that sin and injustice were punished at the cross of Christ. And that it's only because the penalty of sin was satisfied through Christ's sacrifice. Does God extend mercy to undeserving sinners who look to him for salvation? You see, in Christianity, we see sinfulness and evil taken seriously. And we see God's love on display in a powerful way as God takes his wrath towards sin that all of us deserve because because every one of us has rebelled against God, we've rejected God, and he places it upon his own son that, that we might have forgiveness, that our sins might be washed away. So Jesus says this wide road, many Many people take this road. I mean, after all, it is the place to be. Almost everyone's here. The path is nice and wide. You get to be with the in crowd. Jesus teaches an important truth here. Going along with the crowd will not lead to eternal life. That's what he says. Popular opinion will not get you there. And yet, it's so easy to be taken along by the tide. Going along with everyone else. It's awful easy, isn't it? 
But on the other hand, Jesus says that we should take the gate that is narrow. So we've looked at the wide gate, the wide path. Let's look at the narrow way, at the, at the narrow gate. Looking at verse 14. If you think about a narrow gate, it's restrictive. You can't walk comfortably through that gate. So, so in a sense, when you come to follow Jesus, you're leaving things behind. This is the idea of repentance. Repentance says that you're heading one way. You're going life in the way that you want to do it. You're going at it the way you want to do it. And when you repent, you turn and you say to God, I'm not doing that anymore. God, I'm going to follow you with all my heart. That's repentance. That's entering through the narrow way. It's not that we're saved because we do good things. That's, that's ridiculous. We could never do good things and merit God's grace. We're saved when we put our hope and our trust in the Lord Jesus. And when we turn from our sin and we call out to him, then God saves us. Not because we're good, but because of what he did on the cross. But because of what he did in making a way for us. So here's this narrow gate. You're never going to find it by following the crowd. In John 10, 9, Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, those are the words of Jesus. So we, we may not like the fact that, that Jesus' words are exclusive. People will say, well, Christianity is, is so bigoted and it's so narrow and it's so exclusive. And then they'll often say, well, well, Paul and other people later on made all those extra rules or the church. But these are the words of Jesus himself. No one comes to the Father except through me. So he's the narrow gate. Do you want to enter into a relationship with God? Do you want eternal life? Then we have to enter through the Lord Jesus. And what does he say? That if you take this narrow gate and this narrow road, the way's hard. So while the, the wide road is easy, you can believe whatever you want, you can do whatever you want, the narrow well, road, well, it's pretty tough. A life of following Jesus is a life of discipleship. It brings great reward, there's no doubt, but it's a life of difficulty. Matthew 16, verse 24, Jesus taught about this hard path of being a disciple. If anyone would come after me, Jesus says, Verses 24 and 25, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So the path of discipleship means that we turn from sin and we follow hard after Jesus. It's not the easy way. It's not the comfortable way. But it's a good way. It is the best way. Indeed, it is the only way. What does Jesus tell us? What, what's the destination of entering through this narrow gate? Well, the destination is that it leads to life. So while the journey may be fraught with difficulty, the destiny is delightful. This narrow gate, this difficult road leads to heaven. It leads to heaven where, where things will be right, where there'll be ultimate joy and, and gladness. There won't be any more brokenness or heartache, only thrill and delight. That's the end when we enter through the narrow gate and walk the difficult path of discipleship. But notice what Jesus says. Few find this road. You see, so many in the crowd are going to continue down that wide path, doing whatever they want, believing whatever they want, giving no consideration to what's ahead. The number who take the narrow gate intentionally, who take this hard path, what's well, really not that many. 
So if your focus is on fitting in or on pleasing the crowd or going along to to get along, well, that sounds a lot like the wide path, doesn't it? If you prefer compromise or the esteem of, of others, that's an awful wide path. You won't face much opposition when you're walking that path. But Jesus says that some are going to enter through the narrow gate to truly believe in Jesus and follow him down that difficult path. Folks entering this path are going to find that though the way is tough, the end is incredible. Now, what about those who have never heard of the Lord Jesus? Will God send them to hell because they've never heard of Jesus. And I want to share with you some thoughts from an article that I read by, by R.C. Sproul because I felt like he uh, addressed this question in a way that was, that was uh, uh, clear and faithful. And he started with Romans 1. And if you look in Romans 1, what you're going to see is that God has made himself known to everyone by his creation. You can't look at the creation, Romans 1 tells us, and not know that there's something behind that. You don't get something so amazing and so beautiful and so incredible without there being someone to bring that about. And God says that every person on earth who can look at the creation can see that there's a God. And not only that, as we journey into Romans 2, we see that God gives a conscience, and that's another indicator that that he exists, that, that he is. And Romans 1 also teaches that God is angered by the sinfulness of, of the human race. He's angered by, by the evil and, and, and the wickedness that he sees. Now, it's important to note that as we look at Romans 1, God is not angry with the innocent. God is angry with the guilty, with those who have seen who he is and still rejected him. So in Romans 1, we see that God has revealed himself to all people, and yet People still reject him, still travel the wide path, not not pursuing him, not saying, God, who are you, but but rejecting him. So does God send people to hell who have never heard of Jesus? God never punishes anyone for rejecting Jesus if they haven't heard of him. Now, so we all breathe a sigh of relief. Oh, good, I shouldn't tell anyone about Jesus because if they don't hear about him, then they'll be saved, right? No, he doesn't send people to hell for rejecting Jesus, but he sends them to hell, or actually we take the path of hell, might be a better way to say it. He punishes sin not for rejecting Jesus, but because all of us are sinners who have rejected him, who have gone our own way. He has plainly revealed himself, and yet instead of turning to him and seeking him, we have often gone our own way. Now the Bible is clear When we stand before God on that last day, none of us are going to be able to say, God, I had no idea you existed. He says the creation made it too plain. So when we stand before him, that's what we're going to have to answer for. Did we respond? Did we respond to to the revelation that he gave us? Now, R.C. Sproul poses this question. Could God act on his own to get the gospel to someone with a willing heart who had never heard of Jesus? Sproul says he could, but the Bible gives us little hope of that. The Bible gives us little indication of that. Instead, what the Bible 
tells us is that those of us who know Jesus have a responsibility to, to, to get the gospel to people all around the world. We have a responsibility to tell others about Jesus and to be serious about reaching the unreached people groups around the world who have never heard of Jesus. That's what a passage like this reminds us of. So, so as we think about what this means in our lives, what does it mean? Well, first, it means we need to come to Jesus. We need to come to Jesus. If you're here today, has there been a time in your life where you've said to the Lord, I'm turning from my sin and I'm believing you and I'm entering in on that narrow path through that narrow gate? If that hasn't happened, dear friend, I want you to know nothing is more important in your life. A lot of things may seem more important, but nothing's more important than knowing him. What's the destiny to the path that you're on? Where is it leading? And for, the, for those of us who are here who know Jesus, what should a passage like this press into us? It ought to press into us the importance of telling people about Jesus. Are you praying daily for people who don't know him? Are you making the effort to tell them, hey, listen, this is how you can know the Lord? We need to do that if we care about people, if we love people. We want to tell them how they can come to know Jesus, how they can enter through this narrow gate. Brothers and sisters, let us be faithful to share the gospel. C.S. Spurgeon said it like this. If people are going to reject God and land in hell, let them leap over us to do it. Let them leap over us because we've tried all that we can to share the gospel with them and to show them a life of integrity. So folks, let's tell others about him and make him known. So I ask you this morning, what road have you been walking down? Maybe you've been walking down some rough paths. Maybe, maybe you've been going your own way and you've got the scars to prove it. And deep down in your heart, you know the Lord is pressing in. And you know that he's saying to you, get off that road that's a road that's going to hurt you and destroy you. Will you come to me? You know the Lord is calling you. And I'm pleading with you today, if that's you, will you step through the narrow gate? Will you come to Jesus in simple faith, turning from your sin and say to him, Jesus, I want to follow you? What an incredible opportunity is before you this morning. In your heart, you've known that you need a change. And today, with absolute clarity, the words of Christ are saying to you, come, come. Today's the day. Now, others of you, maybe you've been on that wide path and you've been living it up and you've been doing what you want to do, going along, it's been great. But deep in your heart, there's a hollowness there. There's something that isn't right. You've felt that. Maybe this morning, you sense the voice of God in your heart saying, today, won't you come? So friend, I plead with you. Won't you come? Won't you come? Today, take the road that leads to eternal life. Maybe you've been trying to to get to Houston going north on 35, but it won't happen. It will not happen. 
we will not yet into a relationship with God on the wide path. So today, take the one road that leads to eternal life. Jesus calling out, won't you come? It won't be an easy road, but friend, it's a good road. It's the best road. And it leads to joy unspeakable.